0: Hey, so if you have your Bibles, um, you can have them handy, but we are going to be covering a lot of ground today, a lot of different passages of Scripture, and they will be up on the screens to make it a little bit easier to to be able to follow along. So last week we started into a series called Making Sense of Our Sexuality, and so we, we took some time to talk about last week the foundation that God lays from the Scriptures for a healthy sexuality and understanding, especially sexuality within the context of marriage and how God has set that up for us being reminded that sex is good because sex comes from God. Sex is not supposed to have shame and guilt and condemnation attached to it, but that's what ends up happening because we haven't been able to handle what God has given us. And so, uh, just as a reminder, as I head into this again, I mention this and I will each week, so this is definitely a PG-13 series, so if you have children here who are under that age, you probably want to make sure that they head to their class and then you can talk to them as their parent later on about what you hear now. Better coming from you than coming from Pastor John, okay? so But this morning, uh, as we step into what we're going to walk through today, I want to remind you again why we're taking four weeks to do this. Just real briefly, I mentioned this last week, we have a tendency in the church, and I had a lot of feedback this week about people who experienced this. When you grew up, mom and dad, or mom or dad, didn't take much time to talk to, s- about, talk to you about sex, especially if you grew up in the church. That was the taboo that we didn't talk about, and what happens when we don't talk about that, especially in the family, or even especially in our own church, we don't talk about it, is we go to the two extremes. Remember, we talk about we go to the side of being prudish, which means we don't understand anything about it. It embarrasses us. There's shame attached, so it's kind of the, the taboo that we don't talk about, or because we don't have any categories to do, that we go to the other side and we become promiscuous trying to figure out our own idea of sexuality and what this whole thing called sex is all about. And both extremes are not healthy and not right and not what God has for us. And that's why we have to have an honest dialogue and conversation about our sexuality, especially in the climate in the church and in our culture where we live today. And so today and this morning, we're going to talk about the confusion that surrounds our sexuality. And as we walk through what we're going to walk through this morning, we're going to talk about homosexuality, we're going to talk about LGBTQ, and, and that has to do with lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or questioning. That's the, that's the label that's been given in our culture to describe kind of a category of our sexuality that we try to navigate within our culture and even within the church. Now, this morning, as we walk through this, I, I want you to understand some pretty important things about what we're going to dialogue through today is that when I Im- immediately when I mention what I just mentioned, there, there is already camps within the room of your experience, uh, your theological persuasion, or your understanding of morality that automatically gives you a default on what you're about to hear. And now you have a kind of a lens by which you're trying to process through information. I'm going to ask you to put that lens aside. Because what will happen with that lens in the next 30 minutes or so, or 40 minutes, I will, not intentionally, but unintentionally, probably offend every person in this room, okay? It's just a part of the nature of what we're going to talk about today. But I want us to understand with that, as we walk through this, that just kind of stay with me as we walk through the Scriptures, and we walk through what God wants us to understand about this dimension of our sexuality, and let the Scriptures... Interpret and help us understand what God wants us to understand about the concept of homosexuality. This is a hot button in our culture. This is a hot button in the church right now. But I want you to understand as we walk through this, this is not an issue and not necessarily a topic. This is something that has to do with human beings. It has to do with us. It has to do with people. And so as we walk through this, keep this in mind. This is not a theological argument. It is not a political football. It is about human beings who are trying to navigate their... Their understanding of their own sexuality and this is not just in our culture, this is within the church and so I wanted to be sensitive as we walk through this. But before I jump into what we're going to look at, I wanted to put up on the screen just real briefly for you. There's some resources that I've drawn off for this message today that are real helpful in terms of navigating what we're talking about in terms of homosexuality. So um, there's a lot more resources but I want to just kind of summarize them real quick. Messy Grace is a great book by Caleb Kaltenbach who's the pastor over at Discovery. Great friend of mine. His journey is amazing. He grew up, uh, his parents divorced when he was young and they both came out that they were gay and so he was raised by his mom and her partner really very active in the gay community and his first response to Christians is why do they hate us mom and now he's come to know Jesus when he was in high school, and now he's pastoring a church. And so he has this unique perspective of understanding things that many of us in the church don't. Another very great kind of uh, biblical, theological kind of uh, concept for understanding the, uh, this reality is a book called What Does the Bible Say About Homosexually? by Kevin DeYoung. Very helpful. Then another really very practical book um, is a book called Homosexually on the Christian excuse me, Homosexuality and the Christian, A Guide for Parents, Pastors, and Friends by Mark Yarhouse. It really has, if you're navigating this with a family member and you're trying to figure out how do I do this in a gracious and compassionate way, that's a great book. And then there's a last one, a book called Redeeming Sex by Deborah Hirsch. It's very good, and she will not, you won't agree with everything in all of these books, but, but they're really good to kind of understand the different kind of ideas of what's going on in the church today. So, um, but I want to make sure that you had those and so you know where we're coming from today. So I want to begin by answering a question that might, for some of you, might seem rhetorical, but it's very important that we, un- we answer the question from the scriptures, so as we move forward, again, I'm not intending to offend anybody, but that may happen as we walk through this, okay? So is homosexuality a sin? That is a question that is now being debated within the church and within our culture, Um, And so let me just read through, in fact, these will be up on the screen for you, but you can jot them down. These are some passages that deal with this specific uh, thing that we're talking about today in terms of homosexuality. So Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, says, Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman that is detestable. Going on, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. Now, jumping to the New Testament. These are not all the passages, but just a few. I want you to hear the Scripture speak. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. Paul says, "...or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will enter the kingdom of God." Then 1 Timothy 1, verse 9 and 10. We also know that the law is made for not not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. So, why did I read those passages? I read those passages because... From a, a simple reading of Scripture, it seems to indicate to us that, that homosexuality would be considered a sin according to Scripture. And I want to highlight that, not because I'm trying to bash anyone or trying to make a statement to offend anybody, but this is something within the church right now that is up for debate. Um, and, and really, the bigger debate is not uh, not homosexuality, the bigger de- debate is how do we approach the Scriptures? Are they the ultimate authority, or is there some wiggle room? And some people think there's wiggle room. For our church, the scriptures are the ultimate authority. So just reading that seems to indicate that the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin. But we're not stopping there because now some people are like, yeah, Pastor John, you know, you're the right-wing conservative in the room, right? And you're like, yeah, tell them, tell them. Hold on a second. There's a more important question than is homosexuality a sin. It's the, really the, the question we have to get, get at. And that's the next thing I want to answer. What is the sin of homosexuality? Because when we say that in the church especially, we have a broad range of what we interpret homosexuality to be. And I think a lot of it is based on bad information and bad understanding and the lack of personal connection with somebody navigating this in their life. So four things I want us to understand. What is the sin of homosexuality? First thing is this. I want you to hear me. It is not same-sex attraction. It is not. If somebody has an attraction to somebody of the same gender, that in and of itself is not a sin. You need to hear that because some of us automatically, we throw that in, okay, but that's something that somebody is navigating in their life. So because of that, there are people within the church who have been, begun to navigate this. There are very deeply convicted, Bible-believing, following Jesus people who are navigating this reality in their life. There's an author, his name is Chris, Christopher Yon, and he wrote a book as in his own journey of, of coming out of a lifestyle that he embraced. It's a book called Out of a Far Country. And Christopher is an amazing young man and theologian, but in his journey, what he has experienced as he came to faith in Jesus, and Jesus began to touch every aspect of his life, including his sexuality and his identity, he began to realize that his behavior is not what God had for him. And so this is what's amazing about Christopher, is that he is honest with his feelings. He is still attracted to men. He has no, he's not going to pretend to be attracted to women, but he knows according to the scriptures and the conviction of the Holy Spirit for him to act on that would be less than what God purposed for his life. So he is a believing Christian who remains celibate because he knows that acting on his feelings would not line up for what God has for his life. Is he sinning? Absolutely not. Is he attracted to men? Is that a sin? It's not. Just like if you're attracted to something but you don't act on it, just like in a heterosexual relationship or those concepts. It's, it's the action, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Now, on all of this, you have to understand that we'll talk a little bit about this, but God's grace has to permeate every aspect of who we are. He's the one that brings transformation and change. Second thing, homosexuality, the sin of homosexuality is not gender stereotypes. This is one thing that really irks me (laughs) with people, is when we begin to make fun of people because they seem to take on some of the traits or characteristics of the opposite gender of who they are. We do this in the church when we, we make fun of people. If somebody is gay, what do we do? We, we make a, a lispy kind of high voice towards a male who has that. Or we you, do certain gender, like um, uh, physical gestures that kind of would align themselves. And, and we do that kind of in fun, but, but it, we do it as though we're assuming that person just because they have different kinds of mannerisms that may be a- attached to the opposite gender that somehow they're gay or homosexual and they're living in sin. That's not true. I know plenty of people who, when it comes to gender roles, especially, I have have lots of friends, and a lot of them, I don't know why, a lot of them in Oregon, when you, when I, there's some families that we know in Oregon, and when you would say, okay, this is what a woman's supposed to be, and this is what a man's supposed to be, they don't fit the profile at all, but they're in strong, healthy marriages. I know, I know one couple in particular, the guy is a creative, and by our stereotypes, you would say, if you just saw him as a male on his own, you'd say, oh, he's gay, he's nowhere near gay. But you look at his wife, she's the one that actually raises horses, she's the one that lifts hay bales over her head, she's stronger than her husband, and she's everything we would say a male is supposed to be, but she's a female. Is she a sinner? No. No. I think sometimes we get, we get the whole concept of gender mixed up and we come up culturally with what we would, there are things that are embedded in the scriptures, but so much of what we come up about what a male and a female are supposed to be are not from the Bible, they're from our culture. They're things that we've created as opposed to allowing ourselves to be who God has created us to be. So it's not same-sex attraction and it's not tied to gender uh, stereotypes. And then the third thing is homosexuality is not sexual orientation. What do I mean by that? If somebody self-identifies themselves as LGBTQ, one of those categories, that does not by default make them a sinner. Let me explain by that because what we'll talk about in a moment is understanding that what we're talking about is far more specific than what we, we think it is. I know of a couple who... A really neat couple, two girls who would, they would classi- classify themselves as lesbians. At the same time, they would classify themselves as Christians. And we would say, wait, those can't be compatible. But they identify because of their feelings for each other that they would be ca- ca- categorized in our culture as lesbians. But they both have a passion for Jesus. And because of that, this this couple just amazes me is that they know as they grapple with the scriptures that when they read passages and they come face to face with the scriptures and they want to listen to what God's saying, they know they can't act on their feelings. But they still love each other. So they choose to be in a lesbian-celibate relationship. Is that a sin? I don't think it's a sin. And you're thinking, whoa, wait a second. Now hold on, what is the sin of homosexuality? What is it from the passages that we just read? Now understand this. That when God's grace touches everything that is a part of our life and he permeates all of our, he begins to change us from the inside out, not from the outside in. That's what we want to do. We want people to just, hey, stop being gay. Really? Stop being who I am? No, why don't we let God come to bear on, uh, by his grace through Jesus in their life and see what God does, not what we want to do as man because we feel uncomfortable. So really, what is the sin of, sexual, of, of, of homosexuality? From scripture, it is the sin of sexual immorality that's what it is it is as much of a sin as what it is when a male and a female have sexual intercourse with each other outside the context of marriage the same thing is true in homosexuality it's when two people of the same gender engage in sexual activity that is only meant for a man and a woman in the context of marriage it's the same thing heterosexual it's the same thing homosexual it is very specific and that's why we have to understand this because we throw this huge category of homosexuality and we label everybody that, not realizing that specifically from what Scripture is indicating that it's very, very close and specific to what that means for our lives. And what that does is, we'll talk about it in a moment, is very important because that puts homosexuality on the same level as all other sexual sins, not a special category. I don't know why we do this in the church it's because we feel uncomfortable. We, we have a special category for homosexuality. It's weird. In the church, we will tolerate two people living together, but if two people who claim to be gay walk into our church, we get uncomfortable. Why is that? Why is that? It's the same sin at the core of each relationship, but we have to navigate our own personal feelings and why we find ourselves there. So, I'm going to, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. It'll be up on the screen, but John chapter 8. Would you go to John chapter 8? I want to, spend some time talking about how, how Jesus responds to sexual sin, how we should respond to sexual sin. So some would say, though, before we go on as, as we do this, some would say, okay, well, then if, if, if healthy sexuality, healthy sexual intimacy happens in the context of marriage, then why not affirm gay marriage? Why don't you just make it legitimate so that if two women or two men want to be in a relationship, you can call it marriage, and therefore, biblically, it's not sexual immorality. The reason we can't do that is because we're not God. God gets to create marriage, and God gets to define marriage. We don't get to do that. We don't get to go back in thousands of years of church history. We don't get to go back to the beginning of time and look into Genesis and reinterpret what God has already established for thousands of years of church history and say, it doesn't work for us today, so I think we're going to change the definition. Which, by the way, don't worry if the government changes the definition. Don't worry about that. We get all up in arms We don't have to go defend marriage. We don't even have to defend God. He's big enough to defend himself. (laughs) He really is, and we make it the issue. Why? And then what happens is all the culture hears is you hate gays. That's all they hear. That's all they hear from the church. Instead of coming alongside and caring with compassion for people who are navigating something in their life that they don't have the answers for. So how did Jesus handle sexual sin. So, John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Let me read this encounter that Jesus has, and then we'll talk about it in terms of our response to sexual sin in our life. So it says, "...but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, which she was committing sexual immorality. She was having sex with a man who wasn't her husband." They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teach this, uh, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, In the law of Moses commanded us to stone such woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who, began, uh, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. How did Jesus know? I, I am convinced From what the scriptures say, and knowing the nature of Jesus, if this woman was caught in the act of homosexuality, Jesus would have responded the same way. Why? Because the issue was sexual sin. It wasn't the category of it. It was the specific sin that is true for all humanity. So how did Jesus respond? How does Jesus respond to sexual sin in us, and how should we with others? He responds with equality. In verse 7, what does Jesus do? He basically says, okay, all of you who are perfect, all of you who haven't sinned, you can be the first ones to cast judgment and cast the first stone on this woman. So what is he doing? He's looking around, and he's looking at the religious leaders, the ones that are holier than thou, the ones that have brought this woman who is sinful, yet they think they're not sinful. And Jesus says, okay, the perfect ones... You get to be the ones that throw the first stone. What is Jesus doing? He's bringing the reality of all humanity to bear on these men and saying, listen, you're just as much of a sinner as she is. There's, there's this equality that we have to understand, and I think one of the things that sometimes we miss is that we think, and I don't know where we get this, the longer we know Jesus, we think that there really is a higher moral ground at the foot of the cross, that somehow if we hang out there long enough, we get a little bit higher than everybody else that comes to the foot of the cross and we can look down with our moral superiority over people and somehow cast judgment on them, not realizing the weight of sin that is on us apart from Jesus' death, we still have it. There is no higher moral ground. The only person at the cross who looks down is who? Jesus. All of us, all of us on level ground still look up at him as the Savior. It doesn't matter what our our neuroses or sin or brokenness or confusion. It's all the same for Jesus because it's all what he died for. So we don't have the right to stand at the foot of the cross as a sinner and look down on somebody and say, your sin is worse than mine. Jesus was even in the playing field saying, no, sin is sin. It's brokenness, and that's why I'm giving my life for you. And the sooner that we can embrace that and understand it, the easier that we can understand the brokenness in the lives of other people around us. It's the same brokenness that we all have. It doesn't have special categories to it. Second thing, how did Jesus respond to sexual sin? He responded with mercy. So in verse 11, what happens is obviously they scatter because they know none of them are perfect. But in verse 11, Jesus says, listen, I'm not condemning you. And you're, wait a second, the God of the universe looking at a sinful woman and says, I don't condemn you. Jesus has the right to condemn her. But what does he do? He extends her mercy. He doesn't give her what she deserves, which is what? According to the law, was to be stoned, to be put to death. He doesn't give that to her. Why? Because he didn't come to do that. He came to bring a way out of judgment and condemnation. And he knew he was going to the cross, and he knew he would be covering her sin, And so he knew at that moment he could extend her that mercy. See, one of the things that I think we really struggle with is we struggle with accepting a sinner, thinking that if we accept them, we endorse their sin. We do. That's why we distance ourselves from broken people. Because if I'm with them, someone's going to think I agree with their lifestyle, and if I agree with their lifestyle, then I'm going to be just as wrong as they are. And if you realize, that mentality is not even biblical, Read through the Gospels and tell me where Jesus distanced himself from sinners. He didn't. He was with them. In fact, uh, author J- A.J. A- a- Soboto, who's a pastor, a four-square pastor up in Portland, said, you know, he said, I don't know where we get this idea, because he said for him, he goes, you know what? He said, if Jesus functioned that way, that somehow if he disagreed with my lifestyle, that he wouldn't show up, that I wouldn't know Jesus. He said, Jesus disagrees with my lifestyle every single day of my life. But every single day of my life, he still shows up that's who Jesus is. And if we understand that's the way he deals with sexual sin in our life is that he extends mercy, that we should be people who extend mercy as well. Because we are not the authors, we are not the masters, we are not the ones in control, we are not the ones that extend forgiveness. Jesus is the one that does that. And then the same, on the other side of the coin, we're not the one that extend judgment. God has the right to do that. We don't have the right to do that. And then the third thing is that Jesus responded to sexual sin with hope. So at the end of verse 11, Jesus tells her, now leave your life as sin. What is he saying? Listen, this is the beauty of the cross and the beauty of God's grace is that what seems to be the end is always the beginning with God. See, for us, we think of things in terms of a dead end. When we think of our sin and our brokenness, we automatically put a period at the end of it, that's end. it's over. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, erased the period at the end of our sentence. And now we have life. And that means that Jesus encounters this woman, she is guilty of sin, she deserves to die. And what's his last words to her? You don't have to die, and now you get to go leave the life that you were living. Now you get to live the life that I created you to live. And so, so many words, that's what Jesus was saying to her. This wasn't a dead end, and it should have been a dead end, and how many times do we think a dead end is a dead end, and then that's why so many times we become judgmental towards people because all we think of is how they are condemned, not how they are forgiven. We think of judgment instead of grace. God's default through Jesus is always grace and mercy. That's the way he functioned. Up at the top of our street, there's a an old, a newer neighborhood built on the other side of an older neighborhood that we live in, and if you go up to the top of our street, there is a fence that provides a dead end and kind of this makeshift cul-de-sac, because on the other side is this newer development that went in later, but because of property values and things, I'm sure this is the way it worked, is there was some arrangement to create a cul-de-sac and a dead end on a street that shouldn't be a dead end. So if you drive up to the what is now a cul-de-sac there is a fence it is a wrought iron fence that stops you and says basically do not enter and when we first moved there i remember driving up there and seeing that and thinking oh i can't get through this way so i made a u-turn and you can't get anywhere in our neighborhood to the other neighborhood without going all the way down out of our neighborhood and back into this other neighborhood and then i was talking to my neighbor one day and he said you know that fence that gate opens i said it opens he goes yeah technically it's only for fire and police he said but if you drive up close enough He said, there's a motion sensor on that gate, and it'll open for you. I said, are you kidding me? (laughs) I'm telling you, the next hour, I'm in my car. I drive up there, and I'm just inching forward, and then, and it opens like, no. Of course, I backed up and turned around and got out of there because I didn't want anybody to see me if there were security cameras, but I'm thinking, I thought I couldn't get through, but now I can get through in an emergency. How many times you and I, especially in this area of sexual sin, think that it's the dead end that we've come to? It's the dead end in our lives. It's the dead end in somebody else's life, and that's the beauty of the cross. Jesus destroyed the dead ends in our life, and that means nobody, nobody, regardless if you're heterosexual or homosexual, ever has to come to a dead end that says there is no hope for you. Jesus proves there is hope for all of us. All of us have hope in what he's done for us. So how do we respond to the confusion in our sexuality? I want to take some time just for the next few minutes to answer that question. So how do we respond to this? How do we navigate in our own lives, if we are struggling in this area, or in the lives of other people around us that we don't understand, how do we navigate this? The first thing is this. There'll be a number of passages that will be on the screen. The first thing is walk in awareness of our own brokenness. We have to be aware that we are all sinners. None of us is better than the other. Listen to what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. He says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexually immor- sexual morality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why did I read that? because Paul gives a list of sins that probably if you're not guilty of the sin of sexual morality or homosexuality, guess what? You've been jealous before. You've had fits of anger before. You've been hostile before. You've quarreled before. You've been selfish before. You've caused dissension before. You've caused division before. You've had envy before. Yeah? They're all in the same category. We have to be aware of our own brokenness. And how dare we, like Jesus said, how dare we point at the speck in our brother and sister's eye while there is a plank in our own eye? How dare we do that? We have to come to grips with our own brokenness and understand that it's real and it's there. And I think the part of that is that we somehow in the church get this idea that when we, when we walk in the light, when we step out of the darkness of our brokenness and we embrace who Jesus is and his light comes to bear in our lives and we see clearly for the first time, we take the light that Jesus has shined on our path and we shine it in the faces of other people. It's like, taking, it's like that little irritating kid that takes a flashlight and wants to blind you with it. Light was never meant to blind people. Light was made to give clarity to people who were lost in darkness. How do you do that? How do you provide light for somebody who's in darkness? You don't shine the light in their face. You shine it on their path. The only way you shine it on their path is if you're standing right next to them with your arm around them, and as you journey forward in your brokenness and out of your brokenness together, you use the light that Jesus has in your life to show them clarity for their future. If we got that one, if we got that one as the church, no longer would we be homophobic because we wouldn't be passing judgment. We would be offering hope for people. This is so important. If we've experienced that, if we've been the victims of that, where someone has come along and they've found the sin in our life and they think it's their right and privilege to shine light in our face, that God help us not to be those kind of people. Because that doesn't help anybody. If you're blind, you can't see. But if your eyes are opened through the reality of someone's compassion that walks along towards Jesus with you, then your life can be changed. Second thing, how also we respond to the confusion of our sexuality is that we eliminate the barriers to people encountering Jesus. You need to capture this. We unintentionally, sometimes when we pass judgment on those struggling in this category... We become just like the Pharisees. And that's like the bad word in the church, right? Jesus always talked about how the Pharisees missed us, and we don't want to be Pharisaical, but we become that. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 11, verse 46, to those religious leaders. He says, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens that can hardly, they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. So what was Jesus saying? Listen, when you see someone who's burdened down by their sin and their brokenness and who is a lawbreaker, you don't offer help. You just heap more requirements on top of them. You tell them why they're unworthy and why they can't be free and why they have to work harder and why they're gonna be condemned and why they're gonna be judged. You don't offer them the hope that he brings. And sometimes we do that when we see somebody in their brokenness instead of coming along and saying, there is hope. That there is a way that God can help you. And I'm not gonna try to change you, but I know God can do something in you that I can't. And if we do that, then what happens is we learn to actually provide the hope that people are looking for. Not the judgment that we bring to bear on people's lives, but how many times do we create barriers? Listen, if you, if you in your own life, or if you know somebody who's dealing with the issue of sexual immorality in their life, then this brokenness in their life, do everything in your power to remove every barrier that they have in their life to get to Jesus. That is the most important thing we do. Remember in Luke chapter five, remember when some friends who had a, their friend could not walk and they knew Jesus was in town and they knew Jesus had the power to heal. What did they do? They picked up their friend, they crawled up on the roof where Jesus was inside the house because it was so crowded, they couldn't get in. Can you imagine? There's like standing room only. They can't get in like, well, we tried, we're gonna leave him out here and we're gonna try to squeeze it. No, they get up on top of the roof and they tear the roof off and they lower their friend right in front of Jesus. Why? Because he couldn't get there on his own. And then what's the, what's the response? Jesus is as impressed with, obviously he's going to heal the man, but he's impressed with their faith. That you would, you, would, you would believe enough in me that you would get your friend who couldn't get here on his own and you would tear off some stranger's roof and you would lower him down so that he could encounter me. Are we doing that for people who have brokenness in their life? Are we removing barriers or are we just creating more? Sometimes we unintentionally create more, and we can't not do that. Jesus came to blow barriers apart. That's why the religious leaders couldn't stand him. They were all about barriers, because that gave them control. What barriers that does God call us to remove for the lives of other people? And then, and then finally, we respond to the confusion of our sexuality by remembering there's hope for all of us. Ephesians chapter two verses one through five. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Oh, man. Is that amazing? When I was dead, when I was gratifying my own desires, when I was disobedient, when I was an object of God's wrath, Jesus was already working on my behalf to deal with my sin and brokenness so that I could be united with him and reconciled back to God and be part of his family. God does that for all people. He does that for all of us. Listen, one of the things that we have to come to grips with in this area is that our primary identity, our primary identity, uh, regardless of our brokenness, is not determined by our gender, it's not determined by our sexuality, our ethnicity, or our status in life. It is determined by one factor, Jesus that's it. That's it. In fact, it's interesting, Christopher Yuan, in one of the, the messages he was speaking on, I was listening to him when we were up in, in, in Oregon. He was speaking at George Fox University. And even within the church, he was pushing back on how people are saying, listen, that, he goes, he has friends of his that say, I'm a gay Christian. And he's like, no, you're not. You're a Christian. Why limit yourself to be defined by one aspect of your life when Jesus encompasses all of it? You're in Christ. And it doesn't matter your brokenness. You're not defined by your brokenness or your past. You're defined by what Jesus has done in you and in your life through his death on the cross. So just like anything, I'm not a, a male Christian. You're not a female Christian. You're just a Christian. That's what we are. That's why in the scriptures it's pretty clear Paul writes this in Galatians chapter three verses 26 to 29. He says, "So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have, have, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is no male or, fe- or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We're in Christ. That's who we are. And why is that so important? There's a couple things I want to say before I close. The reason that is so important is because we have a tendency to identify ourselves by things that limit what we will allow God to do in our lives. So just for an example, if we identify ourselves as, I am a gay Christian, then by taking on that title, what has a tendency to happen is that we begin to live out that identity. Because we have bought into this mindset that this is the way I'm to live my life. And so I, I, even though I'm trying to reconcile my faith with my sexuality, because I identify as gay first, then what happens is I begin to live out in a rhythm that would be considered gay in my life. Instead of just saying, who defines me? Jesus defines me, period. And when Jesus defines us, even beyond our sexuality, we begin to live more in that identity in every aspect of our lives. That's why it's so important, even in in, in in the process of outside of our own sexuality, but in the process of recovery, it could be it could be sexual addiction, it could be alcoholism, it could be substance abuse, it could be anything that we deal. It's it, we have to be careful, and I know this is a part of like, the process that you will walk through some for some people, but you you say well you know I'm I'm a recovering alcoholic. Someday you have to be recovered doesn't mean that you don't have a tendency or propensity to go back to that sin, but you're no longer an alcoholic. You are in Christ. Doesn't mean that you're not tempted to drink alcohol, but your identity is not defined by your past. Your identity is defined by your future and what Jesus has done for you. The same thing is true in all of us. We don't identify ourselves with our brokenness any longer. We identify ourselves with who Jesus says that we are. And who does he say that we are? We are children of God through Jesus' death and resurrection. And so that covers all of who we are. And let me, let me close with this. In fact, uh, the worship team can come and join me. I just wanted to, just to take a few moments to navigate what maybe what you're feeling uh, in, in your own life and what you've maybe been walking through. A couple of things are really important. First, at a more of a corporate level as a church family. If we are going to be serious about being healthy in our sexuality, that means we don't get to create categories of people who get to navigate that within the context of our community called church. We don't get to say to the heterosexual, you can navigate your sexual immorality, but to the homosexual, you can't do that here. Jesus would have never done that. And that's why as a church family, if if you are struggling or navigating or maybe even in your own mind, you're thinking, I don't have a struggle at all. I know that I'm gay. But you're in church this morning. I want you to know this is a safe environment for you to allow the grace of God to permeate every aspect of your life. I want you to hear that because one of the things that you and I have a tendency to do is we want to change people's behavior. Jesus didn't come to change behavior. Jesus came to transform the human soul then behavior gets taken care of later. And if we are those kind of people because that's the person who Jesus is, then that means this is a safe place. And uh, the reason I say this is listen. And I've shared this before. We have had people in the last three years in our church navigating this very issue and leaving our church because they had encounters with people who passed judgment on them. I don't know who it was. I don't know exactly how it unfolded. But I'll tell you as the pastor of the church, It made me sad it made me sad that they couldn't find safety in navigating the struggles and confusion of their life in the church and i think we have to come to grips with that so that if if that's you and you're navigating this you have a safe place here and you have a safe place as you navigate that not with a time frame attached to it it isn't like hey clean your stuff up in a hurry okay so that we can all feel comfortable no it's as God begins by Jesus' presence in your life to touch every corner of your life. And what, what all of us have to do is this, and I don't want to transition to more of a personal side. Can all of us, whether we struggle in this area or not, whether we identify as homosexual or heterosexual, can we all offer up our sexuality to God? Can we say to Jesus, you are the one that paid the price for my life i am no longer my own i don't get to call the shots i don't get to self-identify anymore because you have ultimately identified me. So whether you're coming from the stance that says, no, you can be gay and be Christian, and those, are, those can be compatible, or you are from the other extreme which says, no, if you are homosexual, you are going to be condemned to hell, that all of us can at one place come and offer our sexuality before the Lord and say, it's yours, you define it, you forgive it, you bring freedom, you make it what it's supposed to be. Can we do that? Because that's what we have to do at the foot of the cross. No higher moral ground. We don't look down on anybody else. We all offer up our brokenness to Jesus who sacrificed himself on the cross for us. So as we go back into one more song, I'm gonna encourage you. There's, there's people who position themselves around the auditorium and those people are there to pray for you. And if you just need someone to just to to agree with you hey i'm going through this and i need someone just to pray for me that i have clarity that god would work in me that i would let god touch all aspects of my life especially in my sexuality then go to those people if maybe you just need to confess a point of brokenness in your life you can do that as well and remember i mentioned this last week if you get up from your seat and you go to be prayed for there is no shame there's just honesty that we're broken And no one's gonna look at you because maybe your brokenness is in this area, but they got brokenness in a lot of other areas just so all of us are in the same boat. This is a shame-free zone, always will be. And that's not just this building. That is the rhythm of who we are as a church and being Antioch. So let me pray and then we'll worship and then you're free to go. And if you wanna pray with someone next to you, you can do that too, but just don't miss this opportunity to allow God to bring to bear what he wants to do in our lives in this area today. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you demonstrated for us what it looks like to encounter someone at the, at the the worst moment of their life in their in their sexual brokenness in this woman and because you demonstrated that for us that means there's hope for all of us there is hope for us if we have experienced sexual intimacy outside the context of marriage regardless if it was with a different gender or the same gender There is hope for us if we have found ourselves addicted to pornography and self-gratification, if we have been addicted to lust and to fantasy, if we have been addicted to all kinds of sexual experiences. There is hope for all of us because you meet us all at that same point of our brokenness. And so today we ask that you, by your spirit, in his presence in us, and through the power of your blood that was shed on the cross, that you would, as we surrender to you, you would bring your forgiveness, your compassion, your mercy, and your grace like a salve that would just reach to the deep, the darkest corners of our souls and bring your light, forgiveness, and love into us today. We need you more than ever. We want to be people who are healthy in all aspects of our life, including our sexuality. So we give it to you, Jesus, and ask for you to do what only you can do, transform us from the inside out. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.